0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate and Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, your host, along with my co-host, Muse co-founder, Ariel Garten. Before we get started, a reminder to check out the free SOS Calm collection of meditations on Muse or Meditation Studio. And if you and your family want to learn to meditate while you're sheltering at home, or, deep in your practice, use the discount code Stressless for your Muse headband. Now might be a really good time to check it out at ChooseMuse.com. We are thinking of all of you and wishing you the very best. Now, on to today's episode. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, a psychotherapist and the author of the book, The Art of Flourishing, A Guide to Mindfulness, Self-Care, and Love in a Chaotic World. Dr. Rubin's pioneering approach to combining psychotherapy and mindfulness has been featured in the New York Times Magazine as well as several other publications. In this interview, he shares that flourishing is all about how we live our lives. We talked a bit about the current crisis in the beginning of the interview, and he shared how important it is for us to relax into our challenges and search for the actual opportunities. There's a lot of wisdom in his perspectives. Now, here's Dr. Jeffrey Rubin. Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, well, we're going through an unprecedented time right now, our coronavirus pandemic. And while I want to talk to you about your book, your wonderful book, The Art of Flourishing, I want to first ask you. As a psychotherapist and a yogi and a meditator, how are you handling this pandemic right now? How are you personally handling it?
1: I look at it like I look at everything, nearly everything in life. It has two sides. So I am trying to relax and open into the challenges. And I'm also trying to search for the opportunities. Most of the time, we think in a zero-one, black-white, dichotomous way. We open to the opportunities, like a movement like positive psychology, and yet we deny the negative side. Or we open to the negative side, some people feel this is a part of traditional therapy and are blinded to the hidden possibilities. I think we simultaneously need to look at both. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do personally. It's been very, very, very challenging for the people that I work with. I worked for a while going into my, I have two offices, uh, New York City and Bedford Hills, New York. And then I decided uh, safer for me and for everyone else not to. And eventually I decided it was the more prudent course to work from home. So that's what I've been doing. I venture out to walk in nature and to run, jog and When I have to, you know, do shopping, but I'm careful about it. and not so frequently, I'm much more staying in. So I've gotten a kind of interesting cross section. And what I began to feel was that people split into two camps. So there were those like the guy that I work with who went to Madison Square Garden for a 40th or 50th anniversary of a famous group that he knew from decades ago and he said, am I blithely moving through the world? And I said, let's talk about it. And he said, I don't think I'm going to get this. And I, I had an epiphany, and I said, you thinking you'll get it is nothing. It's, it doesn't mean anything. It's thinking you'll get it. Thinking It's just thoughts. It's not you can mm-hmm. medically get it but think you won't. So I began to notice there were people that were blithely moving through the world thinking they won't get it or they're immunized. They're actually still out there. What We, we hear about them now. And then there are people, on the other hand, that are going to die immediately and they're running ahead of themselves and that kind of running ahead of ourselves, scripting a negative future, and then feeling in the present moment as if that negative future already happened and then reacting to that with panic. And then what Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg calls piling on, then we start thinking about the other thing. I don't have a girlfriend, or I'm separated, or I don't have enough money coming in. And then at the end of that, we're just buried alive. And all of it is fictional, actually. All of it's (laughs) fictional. I'm not saying this judgmentally. I love that you're talking.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely human. And I love the way you're talking about those two extremes. On the one hand, there are the people that are moving through life thinking they won't get it and they're immune to it in some way. And then the other people that have fear that they'll die. And I do think those are the two extremes. I wanted to also comment on something you said a little bit earlier, which is I heard on NPR this morning, I didn't hear who he was, but he was really disturbed that we're using the word social distancing because he- Me too. Me too. Using the word physical distancing. Exactly. And social connection. Our language really matters about how we think about it. And my observation is that people are connecting a lot socially, maybe not physically, but there's a lot of really kind, funny, positive things that are going on where people are connecting.
1: I think that's exactly right. So I think that one interesting thing about the physical distancing that they call social distancing, I think some people obviously are disturbed by it and feel imprisoned by it and hate it. I think some people like it. If there are some people that like it, and I think there are, one reason might be, because they feel a relief from this outer world that's operating in an insane way and is hammering them.
0: I can totally see that, this relief feeling that there's like a moment where you can step back and it's really what we learn in our mindfulness practice, right? Like there are so many people that are operating on automatic pilot and super busy with not a minute to spare. And I think a lot of people are still busy now. I feel for the people who are home with jobs and homeschooling their children, but
1: exactly, exactly, there is
0: some relief. It's almost like what we feel, and not everybody goes on silent retreat, but it's what
1: you feel when you go on silent retreat a little bit. Yes. And you asked me how I personally am relating to it. The decades of meditation practice and yoga practice, and I do a lot of new stuff in the last few years that I had not done before, Chinese internal practices like that. And what they all lead to is the same kind of openness to the moment, freshness of perception to uh, residing in the body more, not trying to control the external world. And all of those things help the coping with all of this because it's just really harder to rush ahead of myself. It's harder to create fictional scenarios because to me, I always go back to the actual practice of meditation, which I think we need to continually emphasize to people, not just theorizing about it, not just talking about mindfulness, that can have a place, but also the pure practice of it. And so in the practice, you ask to focus on, an, well, in one form of meditation to, focus, concentrative meditation, to focus on a single object, let's say the breath, or the movement of the air at the nostrils or the movement of the abdomen. And when the mind wanders gently and non-judgmentally, notice that and then come back to the experience that we're engaged in, which is paying attention to the full spectrum of the breath. That process to me is a mirror for coping now. So my current life, whatever I'm doing right now, talking to you, the next hour talking to a client on FaceTime, to come back to that and not let the news and not let the gloom and doom and not going off, but coming back. So the practice of meditation for me becomes a metaphor that's been hugely helpful for coping with the onslaught of terrifying news and then the reality of the moments that I'm residing in. Does that make sense?
0: Definitely. If there was ever a time to be in the present moment, it is now. This idea of equanimity, being able to not get thrown by the highs and the lows, I think our mindfulness or meditation practice, now is the time where it really pays off.
1: I do hours a day of these practices. So that then hopefully leads to equanimity. And then when you're interacting with other people, One of the things that can be shared is not just content, but also a kind of presence and a kind of equanimity, which I feel can be contagious. So I talk about this in flourishing, I think in the emotions chapter, negative contagion. So negative contagion is the phenomenon we all know about in -hmm. which someone yells fire in a movie theater and then people panic and then someone falls and then people trip over them. It's like panic begets more panic we're involved in that right now, because I see the virus as a cultural yeah. trauma. Oh, and so cultural traumas lead to panic getting more panic. But what we don't think about enough is the opposite process. And all sorts of contemplative disciplines can teach us about the opposite process, which is instead of a negative contagion, a positive contagion. So if you're nervous Or I'm nervous and then you're calm and I speak to you and then I feel like maybe things are not as bad as I thought. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe there are places of hope. Maybe there are resources for coping. Then I come away from that interaction literally more calmed down, literally more spaciousness, cultivating inner space. And inner space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that capacity for two things, to be more centered and to be more spacious. And they're different, but they're mutually synergistic, those two sort of mental qualities. So when you're spacious, the same thing is going on outside, good or bad, but you hold it more lightly rather than tightly, and you can move more gracefully amidst it. And then when you're centered, you can sort of focus in and handle things. So we need both those qualities, centered and spacious. You can cultivate it anywhere.
0: Let's move on to the book. And I think one of the things that's so central to the art of flourishing is that you combine these different modalities of psychotherapy, meditation, and yoga, and feel that together they are much stronger in terms of helping us to flourish in life. And you examine 12 qualities, some of them you've actually already mentioned in terms of equanimity and clarity, and having that feeling of centeredness and spaciousness. But would you elaborate on what you mean by flourishing? And how can we flourish in any situation? Define what you mean by flourishing.
1: So I got the idea from Aristotle, who talks about eudaimonia in his ethics. And I love his Aristotle's ethics. And He talks about it as living well and faring well. And it struck me as I tried to really meditate on Aristotle, whose writings I love, that I wanted to broaden the definition. So to me, it's not a matter of feeling good. This is where it's different than the happiness movement or positive psychology. It's not feeling good because it struck me as I was working on the book that you could have a relative or a partner who's very ill, or you could have an animal that's dying. And so flourishing is how we live our life. It's not feeling good or doing good. It's doing well with whatever, playing the hand we're dealt as well as we can with grace and dignity. I'm really attacking a kind of cultural viewpoint that has to do with feeling good all the time. One of the people, I'm not going to mention names, but who wrote a best-selling book on happiness, she said, I'm not happy because I'm not happy enough. Well, This seems to me a problem created by the addiction to being happy. I don't spend a day in a year worrying about being happy. I just don't. I worry about living rightly because I think a byproduct of living rightly is you feel more fulfilled and then you do feel happier. So I'm not against happiness, but I am against this sort of knee jerk, rushing out, I must feel happy because you're just going to make yourself miserable and feel unhappy. Do you know what I mean? So flourishing is really different. I meant almost flourishing as an opposite to this cultural vision of happiness right now, which is really me feeling good now. I also feel the world needs more than that. So I also noticed in Aristotle that it wasn't a very relational view. So I view flourishing relationally, which is why I divided the book into two, and the first part is how can you flourish on your own, and then the second half is how can you flourish interpersonally in relationships, either with coworkers, a lover, a friend, whomever, colleagues, To me, there are two major elements to flourishing. One is really taking healthy care of oneself, and the first half of the book tries to define the different elements of that. And then the second half is putting that together in your relationships with other people. And again, you'll live well, and you'll live rightly, and you'll live ethically, and then you will feel better, but I don't focus on feeling better at first. I just focus on sort of living rightly, ethically, sensitively, awarely, like that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just kind of go through this list of some of the qualities that you say can help us flourish. And maybe you can take one or two and go a little bit deeper. Sure. The ones that are most important. But you talk about, as you were just saying, expanding inner peace. You talk about our life being so frenzied that we need to declutter and meditation and breath work and things like this help us to expand our inner peace, which I think might be our most positive thing that's coming out of of right now you talk about cultivating clarity deepening equanimity appreciating beauty learning to read feedback creating harmony composting fear to develop courage i think i was curious about what you meant by emotional composting cultivating integrity and then discovering our passions and i'm i'm guessing that that means that uh, we would be more fulfilled overall if we were living our lives based on our passions. Would you want to elaborate on any one of those?
1: The only one I would add since then is playing. I think playing is essential to emotional and mental and spiritual health. I think playing comes in with intimacy. Playing comes in with challenging one's own conditioning, expanding one's possibilities. My first yoga teacher was a great teacher and became a friend, Joel Kramer. And Joel talked about one of his key concepts of his yoga was playing the edge. The edge is the place between too much challenge and too little challenge. It's the place before pain or fear, but yet you're stretching yourself. And I love that image of playing the edge. So playing in all its myriad forms, I think is crucial. I've been playing by every day going. I'm a gym rat and I have been since I was a kid. I love basketball. That's been, as you could say, taken away because of this. So I rediscovered nature more than I had been because I'd been going to the gym more than walks in nature. And now I'm running in nature and walking in nature. And so finding ways to play, literally play with our lives. And I think just the act of thinking about our life that way can initiate a more playful relation to our life. So that would be one that I would add. So let's take the two that you talked about, though. And I would also want to talk about appreciating beauty after I talk about composting fear. Let me talk about beauty first, actually. I think we misunderstand beauty, and because of our largely patriarchal world still, we look at it in narrow terms, in terms of female beauty and bodies and faces, and I think that is a part of beauty, but I want to say that beauty is more. We get hijacked by a narrow conception of beauty, but beauty is also beautiful soul, Someone We meet people occasionally, and they just they really have a special character, and they may be very loving, they may be very patient and it touches our soul, and it moves us in new directions. So one of the things we can do right now is appreciate the beauty that is there even amidst all the tragedy and people losing their mm. jobs and losing their homes. And But there are all sorts of sort of weird things that we're not even thinking about that people are going through where they can't visit sick relatives or that couples have to stay in separate rooms because one is going to work and may have it. And it's just It's wreaking havoc in all sorts of concrete and subtle ways, right? But in addition to that, at every moment, there's also the laughter of children outside. There's just millions of forms of beauty. So we have to appreciate what is there. I had a moment of this. Both my folks died in 2016, within 11, 10 days, and it was really, it rocked my world. I was with my granddaughter and she was walking down. This was a few weeks later. It was a melancholy. I was in a melancholic mood and it was a rainy November day. And she walks down the driveway and she's a real character. And she was about five then. And she tilts her head back and I look, I catch up to her because it's raining a little bit. And what is she doing out there? So I follow her out and I said, what are you doing? And she said, grandpa, grandpa, I'm tasting raindrops. And my whole mood melted. As I just saw that amidst the nightmare I was going through of two parents dying within 10 or 11 days and the new world order we were in, there's always beauty. There was someone appreciating raindrops in a very zen-like moment. My granddaughter was appreciating raindrops. So that's always there. We just have to see it. We just have to be open to it. There's a story of, I don't know if it was Yo-Yo Ma, but it was a very famous musician and he was playing in a subway somewhere, maybe Washington, D.C., And kids passed, and the parents tried to drag them, and then the kids stopped and listened, and the parents dragged them away. He played for an hour. That's Joshua Bell. And everybody missed it except the kids. They walked right by it. So there's always beauty we're walking by, and we don't have to walk right by it. And that's an immediate source of solace and nurturing. Immediate. And it's for free. So I just wanted to put in a plug for beauty is one of the things. It's right there. It's always, always there. So let's talk about composting. A few years ago, I fiddled around with starting an organic vegetable garden, so I started doing composting, and the metaphor eventually touched me in other ways in my work and just thinking about life, and I realized there's a kind of an emotional composting. So in physical composting, we take what looks like detritus, and we throw it away, or we want to put it metaphorically or literally on our neighbor's lawn. but what if we take it in like we do in physical composting? What if we do that emotionally? So emotionally, we're upset and we project it onto someone else. One of the great meditation teachers once said years ago, Joseph Goldstein once said, someone asked him when people are ready to teach meditation. And he said, when you're free of the power of people's projections. And I've been thinking about that, meditating on that one for decades. And so we often project our feelings. We're feeling upset. We say the other person's upset with us. And We lose the boundary between us and them. It gets blurry. And so we dump our feelings on our neighbors. And we blame one party or the other. And there's just a lot of blaming and attacking. And, And so it struck me that in physical composting, we take what looks like what we want to throw away. It looks like waste and detritus. And we put it in the soil and enriches the soil. So in emotional composting, we take what we want to throw away and we use it to awaken. We use it as the very soil for awakening. That's what I mean by emotional composting. So if we take our fear and we work with it, fear is always a projection into the future with preference. I'm afraid something will happen or I don't want something else to happen. If someone points a gun at you, it's not the gun that's creating the fear. It's your mind goes ahead to, I'm not going to see this one grow up. It's going to be too painful or I'm going to lose my life or I won't finish my CD or it's about the future. It's not about the present. The present is just someone is pointing a gun at you and you're scared and you have a particular breath pattern at that moment. That's what it is. So we go ahead of ourselves. So we can learn to use our fear to get clear about how, what our conditioning is, how we look at life, our characteristic responses and methods of coping and our methods of self protection, what psychoanalysis calls defensive processes we can look at them, we can use them to awaken, to see ourselves more clearly, and to ultimately become more insightful and compassionate and empathic people towards other people.
0: Yeah. And you talk about accepting and learning from our full range of feelings and not getting overwhelmed by them, but treating our emotions as teachers, accepting them all. You were also talking about that as our emotions as tools for what it really means to live our best life and i think what you're actually saying is flourishing is the way for us to live our best lives. Let me ask you a question based on what you just said. So people do feel fear and they do project the future and that's what we often call anxiety. How do we change these ingrained habits of our behaviors? These automatic things that we tend to do and You say this in the book, how do we wake up to other possibilities of being when we're all so, I don't know if the word stuck is right, but we are so ingrained in the way that we live our lives and the way that we behave.
1: That's exactly right. So this is a really good question. And this leads us to one of my loves in the book, which is what I call meditative psychotherapy. So meditative psychotherapy, simply put, is the marriage of mindfulness and meaning, which is what I think we need in the 21st century. The marriage of mindfulness and meaning. I think there's been a huge rise in mindfulness. Now mindfulness is the new yoga, so to speak, the new panacea. And I think it's wonderful. I mean, I've been meditating for decades, and I meditate twice a day every day. And It's not everything, and this is a radical claim which anyone who disagrees in the audience is free to disagree. The Dalai Lama was speaking in California some years ago and apparently he got together all the support staff that was gonna be helping run this conference and he said his first comment to them was, remember, Buddhism isn't everything. So that got me thinking, what is everything? Well, life is everything. That's rocks, that's people, that's animals, that's nature, it's everything. It's relationships, it's solitude, it's contemplation, it's war, it's life, is everything. So in the same way, mindfulness is not everything. It's wonderful. And what I've treated a bunch of Buddhist teachers, and inevitably, there are struggles with particular psychological content. The reason for that is I think what happens with a lot of meditators is they open to what they're experiencing, they even feel it in the body, and then they just let go. And I think just letting go is wonderful because most of us spend a vast amount of time, an inordinate amount of time holding on to replaying the past, fantasies about the future, not living in the present. It's a radical cultural teaching. It's wonderful. It's one of the great Nobel Prize winning discovery by the Buddha and thousands of other teachers who practice. Yes, and yes. And. Maybe it's not enough because when you just let go, the next moment comes. It doesn't mean that you're done with the conditioning. Even among the highest Tibetan and Zen masters, it goes on. And it's not surprising to me at all because what happens is feelings, let's say, of lust come up for the teacher and the student and then the teacher stays with their breath and then the feelings go away. But I think what we also need is the marriage of mindfulness and meaning. I think we need to explore the meaning of some of this stuff that comes up because there's a line in the Talmud that says, dream unanalyzed is like a letter unopened. So a few years ago, Patricia, I said to myself, what are feelings for? And I just sat with the question for a while and I realized, well, one of the things they're for is to tell us what we love, what we cherish, what we want to move towards. They also tell us what we're frightened of and what we want to stay away from. And they're also an empathic bridge to other people. so they tell us they're an empathic bridge to other people. We can imagine what someone's going through by using empathy and, and using our own feelings, okay. So some of the time where meditation is causing people, uh, be, I want to be clear about this, to simultaneously open to their feelings and simultaneously unwittingly dismiss them. Buddhists are going to argue with this. They're going to go, no, 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 I open to it, I feel it in the body. Yes, they do, but they don't get, go into the meaning because meaning is not part of the Buddhist game. It's just not what the focus is. The focus is on letting go moment to moment, so you could be liberated, which is a beautiful goal. Again, I have the highest respect for it. All I'm asking for is a, a consideration of a tweak, a life hack that I think would make it even stronger, which is use the meditation to delve into deeper and deeper parts of our conditioning, and then where appropriate, where it keeps calling us. And I think with, I even saw this with teachers. They'd have the same scenarios would come back and back and back over decades. And I think the reason is they're not listening to the knock on the door. They're not opening the letter. They're not saying, what are these feelings for?
0: This is a perfect lens for you as a psychotherapist and a meditator and how unique for you to bring that to each of your patients that comes in because meditation does give you access to many feelings that you might not have. Exactly. So having a a companion to go through this all with to help explore is a really perfect companion.
1: In Naropa, one of the Buddhist communities, I studied with Joseph Goldstein and with a man named Robert Hall. There was a woman who wrote a book on mindfulness some years ago, a therapist, and she quotes a martial arts teacher at Naropa, and he came up with an analogy about meditation which is to try to describe it to a beginner, he said, it's like going to a party and you look at one person and you say hello and you really take them in. And then you look at the next person and you say hello and you really take them in and you keep doing this. And this sounds great until you start thinking about it. And I started thinking about it. What I realized is if I did that at a party, I would be flitting, not getting to know anyone. He was using that to describe the meditative process. And this woman who wrote the book on mindfulness, who teaches at Naropa, used that as an example to explain mindfulness. And I realized what that is, is it's sitting with for a second and then it's leaving. And all I'm trying to say is, if we sit with the feelings, let them arise through meditation, but then go into instead of move on, that's the only change I'm trying to recommend.
0: Well, let's talk about the second part of the book is called Cultivating the Garden of Love. Tell me what you think are the most important aspects of cultivating the garden of love.
1: Well, first of all, think of love like a garden. Love is like a garden. What does a garden have? It has weeds that have to be pulled. It has to be watered. It has to be harvested. It has all these pieces. So I'd like the reader to play with just starting with that as the metaphor that Love, in a way, is like a garden. In other words, if you look at many of our Hollywood or culturally shaped images, I walked across the room and I knew he, she was the one. Once I read a book, Escape from Intimacy by Anne Shape, and she has a list of these for a page and a half, single spaced. I looked across the room and she was the one. She has just a list of them. And I'm reading them and I'm shaking my head, yes, 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 and it's feeling wonderful. And then at the end of it, she says, this is all mythology." And I had not thought about it that way. In other words, what did you know when you you looked across the room? What you knew is the person fulfilled an image that you had about what you want, either appearance-wise or emotionally. Mm -hmm. It's all image. It's they fulfill the image I have of what I want. It's nothing about I'm into them or I get to know them or I cherish them or I validate them. It's all about me. It's a very self-centered vision. But yet this is what's inculcated in us. We can't help it. It's conditioned. Hmm. Our life isn't the excitement and the build. I mean, it is the excitement and the build up, and she's the one, he's the one. But it's carving out a workable intimacy after that. That's the work. The movies don't show that. All they show, they play into if you two wait enough or you two do X, Y, or Z, you'll find the one. And then if you start thinking about the one, It's the perfect one. She or he is the only one. So I started really looking at this. But my conception of love and intimacy grew out of challenging and thinking through some of this stuff. So maybe there isn't the one, the one. Maybe people are, as Nietzsche would put it, human all too human. And we have many dimensions and some pieces work and some pieces have to be worked on and some pieces just have to be accepted and loved and cherished, but even though you'd see it differently or you disagree differently. So I just want to start out with almost a global conception of reorienting the way we, someone said the French thinker, love has to be reinvented. I think we have to think about it differently. And it's not about, to me, just an ecstatic moment. I mean, it has that to it, physically and emotionally. But it's about working out a relationship that is sustained and nourished over time, that nourishes the soul of both people. It's creating a we that respects and nourishes both eyes, capital eyes. Yeah, it's about us flourishing together.
0: What is your advice to people for handling conflict? You talk about long-standing disagreements and letting go of resentment resentments that people carry can become so toxic. Is that something that you do better with in psychotherapy or with learning mindfulness tools like equanimity?
1: I think both. I mean, in my own Mm -hmm. life, I had to do both. I developed equanimity over decades of meditation or hopefully developed it. And Mm -hmm. also at times I had to do the nitty gritty work of going into the specific, either in self-analysis or with a therapist. Yeah. And then it becomes less toxic when you're having the discussion. There are less trigger points. That's one of the problems. There's such trigger points with most people. Right. And then they just explode. And then they can't hear the other person at all. And then they further the other one's sense of abandonment or being dismissed. And it's just a vicious cycle of negativity. So I think it's both. It's working on yourself. And then sometimes if you feel you need it, going to someone else you can talk to honestly who's going to be non judgmental and help you with it. It's really both.
0: Well, this is great. Let's end on a positive note. Let's not end on trigger points.
1: Things are worse than we believe and there's more hope than we know. There's always beauty. There's always possibilities of connecting with people. There's always beautiful new things that are unexpected that are outside our wheelhouse that are possible. I, I believe both simultaneously. That's the Taoist in me that really believes in yin and yang. It's always both. Things are really grim and there's undreamt of possibilities. And I really do believe that, especially the second part of it. I really do.
0: Yeah. And you started this by saying open into the challenges and search for opportunities.
1: So if we can use the challenges to look for the opportunities, then there can be new growth and new possibilities in our lives and the lives of other people.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really
1: appreciate your wisdom. Thank you. Good luck with it. And thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much to Jeffrey for today's interview. You can learn more about him, his books, and his workshops at drjeffreyrubin.com. And as always, if you have comments or suggestions, email us at untangle at choosemuse.com. And don't forget to check out Muse with the Muse Stress Less discount at choosemuse.com. We'll see you next week.